Welcome. This talk is on the subject of the atonement, uh, God's final revelation to the human race. And it covers the subject of Christ, uh, Jesus Christ's redeeming work for our salvation. I'm going to begin this talk by looking firstly at a few contrasts between the Muslim and the Christian conception of what human sinfulness is. As far as Muslims are concerned, sin is basically wrongdoing. Uh, many Muslims believe that you can set that off with right doing, and that on the day of judgment, if the good deeds outweigh your bad, well, that's all right, it doesn't matter about the bad deeds, the good deeds will carry you through. Muslims also believe, according to a text of the Quran, that every man bears the burden of his own sin, and that no one else can compensate for or substitute for anybody else <coughs> in taking the consequence of sin. As far as the Bible is concerned, sin has a very different effect on the human race. It sees the whole human race in opposition to God. Sin, according to the Bible, is not just wrongdoing. It creates a rebellious condition in human nature, sets man and God apart from each other, sets them in conflict with each other, in opposition to each other. Romans 3 verse 9 to 18 is the passage you can read to just see where Paul quotes a whole lot of Old Testament texts to just show how comprehensive the whole subject of human sinfulness is when it comes to uh, God and man in relation to each other. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to the deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And Paul just goes, into every text he can from the Old Testament to show that all human beings are just under the dominating power of sin. Not only that, but sin deadens. It deadens the human nature and it makes it impossible for people to come alive by nature and respond to God. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together with Christ. And that is a fundamental Christian teaching. All human beings, without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, are slaves to sin and are dead in their trespasses and sins. The Quran, however, for example, Surah 100, uh, verses 6 to 8, just regards sinners as, <coughs> or, or sinful nature as pursuing your lusts, pursuing your passions, and just being indulgent. Something that can easily be remedied just by abandoning it, or else by doing good deeds that perhaps could set it off. The question is whether man is as bad as the Bible says he is. Or if I can rephrase that, the question is really if God is as good as the Bible says he is. Because that will tell you where human sinfulness uh, comes into a context with God. How does he see it? What's his attitude to it? Well, Jeremiah 17 verse 9, he tells you exactly what he thinks of human nature. God says, the heart is desperately corrupt beyond all things. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to his doings. The heart is desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? Who can fathom it? Romans 3.23, Paul says, man falls short of the glory of God. That's something Islam doesn't understand. It's not just that we are neutral beings as Islam sees it and that we do good deeds or we do bad deeds and they don't affect who we are. According to the Bible, the sins we commit pull us down before God and therefore the, sin, the, the capacity to lift ourselves up isn't there. We fall short of his mark. 
We don't make, match up to what God expects of us. <coughs> to convey this to the Muslims, one of the best ways is to compare Adam and Jesus. Adam was the first man who lived, and Jesus was the one who came to redeem us from Adam's sin, as you find in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. For as by a man came death, <coughs> by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, this is for me one of the best ways of handling the subject in when you're witnessing to Muslims. Muslims accept a lot of things about Adam and Eve. Firstly, they accept that when Adam and Eve entered the forbidden fruit, they were chased out of the Garden of Eden. Jonathan Adam is the Muslim expression, the Quranic expression. And what they particularly accept, perhaps don't think about it much, but they accept it, is that they were never let back into the garden. Uh, the amazing thing here is that the Muslims believe that Jonathan Adam is actually in heaven and that it is, was up there that Adam and Eve sinned against God and that when they were cast out, they were cast down to the earth and they had to find each other. And only after they did were they forgiven of their sin. But that the effect of it was so great that they were never allowed back up into heaven. Instead, they died and all their offspring have died ever since. I've often asked Muslims, I said, what would have happened if Adam and Eve had not eaten of the forbidden fruit? Would they have been cast out of heaven? No. Would they have died in heaven? No. What about their offspring? Of course, when you think of it, the logical conclusion is that death was a consequence of sin. And that's what the Christian Bible teaches. At this point, Muslims may get the point. Certainly was for Adam and Eve. Death was the consequence of their wrongdoing. So when you have a look at Adam and Eve in Islam, you see them created according to Islam in paradise. Jannatul Adan, Garden of Eden, is a name for paradise in the Quran. Uh, it's used in Surah 972, same as Jannatul Fordos, Gardens of Paradise. <coughs> but just as Adam and Eve were cast out of heaven, Muslims believe that Jesus who lived on earth and was conceived here, actually went up into heaven. He was taken there. By the way, the only one to be taken there, according to the Quran. So he lives alive there to this day. And according to Islamic belief, he's the only human being in heaven. And I've often said to Muslims, come on, come on, there, there, there's something here. This goes beyond just prophethood or anything else. Why was Jesus taken up to heaven? Why has he been there for 2,000 years? And they say, oh, well, that's because uh, he wanted to be a follower of the Prophet Muhammad. So at the end of time, he's going to come back into the world and he will be allowed to lead the world to Islam and he'll be a follower of the Prophet. And I thought, well, that's strange. And you know, to be up there among the company of holy angels in God's own presence for 2,000 years, only to want to come back to this dumpy earth, <laughs> dust and blood and everything else. And I thought, that's strange. I thought, will he just come back as an ordinary human being? Oh, yes, he'll land on a mosque in Damascus and they'll let him down. And uh, I said, well, how do you recognize him? And many Muslims find that a bit hard to answer, although there's a strange tradition in Islam that says, well, he'll be missing one of his uh, four fingers. Come all that as it may, uh, I got a much better answer out of another Muslim once who, when discussing the subject, said to me, I believe that when Jesus returns, he will come shining like a light. So I said, why do you say that? He said, well, she can't come from heaven looking like this. <laughs> In other words, that sums it up. He got the point. Once you go to heaven, you go back to glory. 
Adam and Eve were cast out of God's presence, Jesus went right into his presence when he went into heaven, into the presence of the Father himself. And so I say to Muslims, you know, the reason why Jesus went to heaven was because he came from heaven in the first place. He did not come from the, the, the origin of Adam and Eve in the normal form as we do. He was born of a virgin woman. He was not procreated. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. John 3.13 says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's the point. No one else went up there. He came down from there, became a human being, and then went back where he came. It's a Christian position. Adam came forth out of the dust, returned to the dust. We all come out of the dust. We will all go back to the dust. But Jesus came down from heaven into the world. That was his first coming. And so he went back to heaven. And that's why we Christians speak freely of a second coming of Jesus. You find it also summed up in these words in John in 16 verse 28. Jesus said, I came from the Father and I came into the world. Again, I'm leaving the world and I'm going to the Father. Just to emphasize it. We go to the dust. He go, went to heaven because he came from there in the first place, just as we came from the dust. To put it a bit further to Muslims in context, in Romans 8 verse 3, we read that he came into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, he became just as we are. He didn't come in a sort of special perfect human body that was protected from all the elements in a way that ours aren't. No, he came in exactly the same flesh and blood that we have, the likeness of sinful flesh. He came the first time to be made just like us so that he could redeem us. But he will come the second time in all his glory to make us like himself. Matthew 17 verse 2, uh, the disciples Peter, James and John saw Jesus transfigured. And they saw him shining. And Matthew says his face shone like the sun. And John had the same experience when he was on the Isle of Patmos after Jesus' ascension to heaven. And he saw, as we read in Revelation 1, he turned around, he saw the Son of Man shining like the, like the sun itself. His face shone like the sun. And we are told in Matthew 13, 43, Jesus said, Then the righteous, in that day when he returns, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And I find it very useful to point this out to Muslims. First time Jesus came to be made like us in every respect so that he could redeem us. Second time he'll come as he really is, not as we are, so that he can make us like himself in all his glory. I've often said that, and this is my impression, Christianity has the most pessimistic view of human nature, but it also has the most optimistic view of what any human being can become. The reason we have this pessimism about human nature is because we see the glory of God in all its fullness. I'm quite satisfied that we see it in a way that no other religion does. I've yet to meet a Jew or a Muslim who recognizes the righteousness and the holiness of God for what it really is. It's only in the New Testament as you see the revelation of God's per per perfect nature filled in the person of Christ that you see just how glorious he is and understand why human sinfulness is such a rotten condition and one that needs to be redeemed. But once redeemed, we have the hope of glory. We don't just hope that one day we're going to live in a very nice, comfortable surrounding where there are going to be rivers and gardens in a paradise where young men will look after us and there'll be all sorts of delights to keep us you know, occupied. But we're going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of heaven. 
We're not going to reflect God's glory as angels do. We're going to generate it back to him because God lives in us as believers. The third person of the Trinity, his presence will be manifested as we are transformed into the likeness of Jesus. You'll see the glory of the Father, you'll see the glory of the Son, and you'll see the glory of the Holy Spirit in every one of us. Yet the Spirit of God, because of what the Father and the Son did to achieve our salvation, will not count that glory as own. He'll give it to us. He'll allow it to be ours because it was won for us by what Jesus did when he died for us. Quite simply, when Adam was cast out, the door was shut behind him. Jesus is the door and he opens it for us to get back in. A compelling message for Muslims. It's interesting at this point just to have a look at the fall of Adam in the Quran. Many Muslims say that Adam did not sin against God. Now he just forgot God's command. And I found that very, very difficult to accept. And if you ever meet Muslims who say things like that to you, you need to deal with this and point this out to them. According to the Quran, Adam fell. Our doctrine of a fall is perpetuated in Quranic language. And he was driven out of the garden. He wasn't just asked kindly to leave at the end of the day. In Surah 2 verse 36, we read these words, But the devil made them slip from it and caused them to depart from the state in which they were. And we said, Allah, fall down from here, some enemies to the others, and on the earth there will be a dwelling place and a provision for a time. So they were, as the Bible says, driven out of the garden and the door was slammed shut behind them. Quran supports the Christian position that the wrongdoing that Adam and Eve committed had devastating effects, not only for themselves, but for the whole Christian, uh, sorry, the whole world after them. The key word here in Arabic is akbitu, fall down, get out of here. That was the consequence of their sins. And I always find it hard to work out how Adam could have forgotten God's command when Satan reminded him of it. Not only was it the only command Adam received from God, but the devil actually in Surah 17 verse 9 brought it back to his attention. He said to him, your Lord has only forbidden you this tree, lest you become like the angels or those who live forever. And still Adam goes ahead and eats of it under Satan's initi initiative. So he knew what the consequence would be. He knew what he was doing. Many years ago in my part of the world, about 40 years ago now even more, <coughs> the country that is north of South Africa, immediately north of us, was known as Rhodesia, Zimbabwe today. But at the time when the British wanted to turn Rhodesia over to majority rule, Ian Smith was the prime minister and with his cabinet, he declared independence from Britain and it was known, it became a common expression in Southern Africa as UDI. We still use the expression to this day. Rhodesia's UDI. UDI means a unilateral declaration of independence. And that's what Adam and Eve did when they sinned against God. They didn't just make a mistake. They didn't just have an oversight. They didn't just forget God's command. They didn't even just commit a sin. They rebelled against God. The Lord God had said, I put everything under your feet, only you're under my authority. That's all. You can control this whole world. You can have everything for yourself, provided you submit to me and my lordship. And what they did under Satan's tempting was to say to themselves, let us shake off the control and the authority of God on our lives. If we eat of that fruit, as Satan said, we 
will become like God. And we will be able to be alive to him. We will know the difference between good and evil, as Satan said. In which way we're going to be different to what we are now. We're going to be better, far better than we've ever been before. So let's shake off the authority of God. Let's become masters of our own destiny. And then we can be like God, gods in our own right, our own gods. Of course, what they learned painfully and what we all learn painfully to this day is when you listen to the devil, you don't become like God. You end up becoming like the devil. You end up becoming a fallen creature destined to destruction like him. Now, only Jesus can redeem us from this. And the best passage of scripture here for a discussion with Muslims on why we need to be redeemed from the state of sin that we're in is Romans 5 and 6. Just give you some of the passages from Romans 5 that bring this out and are very useful in witness to Muslims. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. There's the statement that defines the whole of biblical teaching about sin. One man brought sin and death into the world, and death is a penalty of sin. But verse 15 the free gift is not like the trespass. Because if many died through one man's trespass, much more will the grace of God and the free gift of that grace in one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. Down you go with Adam, up you come with Jesus. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of that grace abounded for us. Then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. It's... It's a very easy comparison in Muslim outreach. What our identification with Adam brings us down into condemnation. But once identified with Jesus, our, his obedience gives us the righteousness we need. It's by one, as sin reigned in death, uh, so grace might reign in righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Same point. Paul just keeps going on and on and making the same point. By one man's disobedience, when he became sinners, so by one man's obedience, many became righteous. And he goes on in 1 Corinthians as well. In chapter 15, 21, he says the same. For as by a man came death, so by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. And in the next verse, he sums it up. For as in Adam, all men die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And one of the reasons why I find these passages useful is because the Quran also says something about Jesus and Adam in comparison with each other, but it says exactly the opposite. It says Jesus and Adam are exactly the same. No difference between them. The expression comes in Surah 3 verse 58. The likeness, or the mathal is in Arabic, the likeness, the parable of Jesus is the same as the parable of Adam. God simply said to him, be, and he came to be. Now, there was no difference between them. And I've heard many Muslims say that, you know, the virgin birth of Jesus is not unique because he may not have had a father, but Adam had neither father or mother. Allah just said, kun, fire kun, be, and it comes to be. So the two are said to be the same. But what a useful contrast we have in the scriptures between Adam and Jesus. Adam brings the human race down to death, to condemnation, and to hopelessness. But Jesus Christ lifts us up to righteousness, to salvation, to the hope of eternal life. And I love the passage in Philippians 2 from verse 5 following because it brings this contrast out so beautifully. Paul says, have this mind in yourselves which you have in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, 
He did not count equality of God with God something to be grasped at. He's contrasting this with Adam because Adam was in just in the form of man. But he grasped at equality with God. I'll be the master of my own destiny. He says Jesus had the form of God. He could claim something for himself, but he didn't count that something to be held on to, to be gripped for himself. But he emptied himself. He humbled himself and he was found in human form, took the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men. In other words, Adam was obliged to live as a servant of God, but Jesus voluntarily in all humility, assumed that position. So as while Adam is trying to prop himself up, Jesus is willing to come down. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, having been found in human form, he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Now he's saying Jesus was prepared to even go further down than Adam would ever have been required to go. He was not only became a human being and became a servant, he was not only humbled, he was willing to be humiliated and sent right down to a cross and right to the grave. And that's the contrast between them. Adam tried to raise himself up and found himself pulled down to the dust. And Jesus came all the way down right into the dust and raised himself up and raises us up. So Paul says, therefore God has exalted him, given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Another argument of Muslims. Do Christians enjoy a license to sin? Now, I have met many Muslims. Oh, it's perhaps the commonest objection in my time that I have heard from Muslims. Many of them who bring this argument up. In fact, I remember one just sitting one day listening to me talk and he never blinked an eyelid. I don't think he just sat there and just listened quietly, patiently. And it was not easy to talk because I couldn't communicate with him. And at the end of it all, I said, well, there you are, that's a message. And uh, so what do I say now? And he looked at me and he said, um, you know, I've just got one question for you. It was the usual one. Um, if Jesus died for your sins, doesn't that give you the right to sin as you like? Isn't that a sort of blank check to live as you like and behave as you like? I don't know how it is all over the rest of the world, but that was the commonest objection in my country, South Africa, that I've ever heard to the Christian gospel. Muslims say to me, did Jesus die for all your sins, past, present, and future? How can that be? Even future sins. I said, listen, when Jesus died, all my sins were future sins. I said, so, but that gives you a right now to live as you like. Well, let's have a look and let's see. Here, as I said to you, the best passage is Romans 6. Paul deals with this very issue very deliberately in this chapter. And one of the questions that Paul asks is exactly the one that Muslims are asking. Uh, Romans 6 verse 15. Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? And his answers go right to the core of what our Christian gospel is. And whenever Muslims raise a subject, he has your opportunity to deal with this. In verse 2, his answer is emphatic. What? How can we who died to sin still live in it? <laughs> what he is saying is, Jesus didn't just die for us. When we come united to Christ, we are united to him in his death and resurrection. We die with him. That was the whole point. He died to sin once for all so that we might become the righteousness of God. The aim was to get us out of sin, to pull us out of the gutter, to lift us up so that we might conquer the power of sin. Romans 6, 10 to 11, the death he died, he died once for, to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin 
and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that's our message. We've been given the power. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We can conquer sin in our lives. And we can live for him and become the person he wants us to be. Something we can't do without that power. God's grace delivers believers not only from the guilt of sin, but it also delivers us from its power. John 8.34, Jesus said, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now, how do you get out of that position? You've got to be emancipated from your slavery. And that's what Jesus came to do for us. I've often spoken to Muslims at this point and said to them, tell me, do you think that sins are wrong? Oh, yes, we shouldn't sin against God. So I said, then why don't you wake up tomorrow morning and the first thing you do before you even get out of bed, say, Allah, from today, I will never sin again. Not once. I promise you I'm going to be faithful to you every moment from now on. And do you think I've met one Muslim in the world who said, yeah, that's a good idea, I'll do that. <laughs> Every one of them has said the same to me. What? And this is what I hear. This is the sort of thing I hear. You know, sometimes we're not even aware that what we're doing is sinful. And that's a very good point to make because it shows an awareness of sinfulness. Sometimes we're not even aware that we're sinning against God. We think we're doing something right and it's against God. Oh, there's not a person in the world who can go a whole day without sinning against God in some thought, word or deed, Something. And many Muslims, I've found, have got a deep consciousness of their own sinfulness. After all, that's what it is. The God who created them is the Christian God. He is the righteous God of the Bible. And human condition is rebellious. And it is sinful, whether the Quran likes it a lot or whether Muslims like it or not. But they're aware of it. Many of them know it. Sin is a compelling force within the human spirit not just something that it just tick off as a, something you did wrong. Romans six seventeen to 18, however, says, But thanks be to God that you who were once the slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you've been committed. And now that you are set free from sin, you're slaves of righteousness. Again, Paul says in Titus two fourteen, He came not only to redeem us from all iniquity, but to purify for himself a people who will do good deeds. For many Muslims, the power of indwelling sin and the opportunity that we have to conquer that, the very attraction of another power entering you and giving you the power to conquer sin is very attractive. Many of them do. They find that very attractive. And I've spoken to them. I've said, what would you do if you had an indwelling power given to you by God that allows you to conquer both the guilt and the power of sin? <laughs> Many guilt-ridden Muslims find that attractive. That's what somebody once called the Christ-shaped vacuum in the human heart that only Jesus can fill. And that leads me to the third point here, and that is being filled with the Holy Spirit. Believers receive the Spirit of God. It moves us from within. It delivers us from all these deep desires in the flesh and the lusts of it to just please ourselves. And there's a lovely passage in John's Gospel where he brings out, just through something he saw happen to Jesus when he died, just what this means. John 19, 33-34 says, When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And John makes much of this. He says, I saw this with my own eyes, and I'm telling you the truth, and I'm saying it to you so that you may believe. Believe what? That it happened? 
I wouldn't go into such trouble to emphasize it. No, that you may believe that the blood and the water have been shed and they're available to you. And filling in on what Paul said in his letter to Titus, this is exactly it. The blood represents the negative side. The guilt, the judgment, the condemnation for our sins, blood washes that away. But on the other side, the power, the grace, and the strength of our faith in Jesus gives us the water of life, the newness of it, the freshness of it, the ability to become righteous in God's eyes. We were not redeemed to be neutral. We were redeemed to be very good. If Muslims say, you can sin as you like, just ask them to pick up a Christian Bible and show us where they get that from. Not, not their logic. I don't want to hear Muslim logic. I want to know where does a Christian Bible say that because Jesus Christ died for your sins, don't worry, that, you know, you've got a blank check now, you've got an acquittal, there's, there's nobody who can arrest you, you're immune from prosecution, so you can go and sin as you like. Right, the last point. <clears throat> the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, because Muslims often quote this. I used to hear Ahmadidat in South Africa, even on television program I once had a, uh, I was on a debate with him, uh, with four of us on national television in South Africa, and he brought this up. It was always being brought up that <clears throat> Christians say, believe and you'll be saved. And yet when a young man came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? He says, what did Jesus say? Believe in me and you'll be saved. Simple. He said, no, Jesus said, Matthew 19, 17, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And that's what we Muslims are saying, Didat used to say. Um, you've got to keep the commandments of God. You've got to do your best. You've got to make an effort and hope that you know, God will forgive you the rest sort of thing. But uh, we'll say that in a muted way, no doubt. No, it doesn't go like that. Jesus' words to this rich young ruler were, why do you call me good? God alone is good. In other words, there's no human being on this world that's good enough by his deeds or anything else to be saved. You can only call me good if you recognize me for who I really am, God incarnate, son of God in human form. Jesus time and again made it clear that that's exactly who he is. Pointed out to Muslims, John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. That's not just a parabolic statement. It's a fulfillment of the uh, Ezekiel 34, 15, where God said, I myself will become the shepherd of the sheep. And what Jesus is saying is, I am that good shepherd. The very words I am in Greek are ego, I me. I, I am. I myself am the good shepherd. Same as Jesus said, I'm the light of the world and so on. So he was saying, do you see divine uniqueness in me? Are you aware that I'm a different person? If you're asking me, what must you do to inherit eternal life? And after Jesus had quoted five commandments to him, he left out the tenth. He took all the ones that relate to man in his relationship to man. Commandments five to nine. And then when he'd finished and said, you know the commandments, honor your father and mother, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not bear false witness. The young man said, well, I've kept all these from my youth, which I'm sure Jesus could have challenged if he wanted to. But he looked on him and he loved him. And he thought, I'll get him on where I know he's weakest. And he looked at him and he said, you lack one thing. Go and sell everything that you have. If you want to be perfect, sell it all. You'll have treasure in heaven and then give it away and come and follow me.
This was just too much for the young man as I think it is for most humans on earth. Wow. Everything I've got. He was a man who accumulated great riches. He depended on those riches. They were part of his dignity. To put it quite frankly, he just couldn't hold himself up on the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. But the important thing here is the way Jesus said, if you would be perfect, go and do this and that. In other words, if you want to perfect yourself and be good enough to get into my Father's kingdom, then do the perfect thing. Make a perfect renunciation of everything that's got that's standing between you and me. And then follow me. See, James 2 verse 10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And these commandments, these ten commandments, do not stand to bring us into the kingdom of heaven by their obedience. In the Christian uh, New Testament, Jesus reshaped those commandments in the Sermon on the Mount and showed that they are symbols of absolute spiritual principles. Uh, <clears throat> you've heard it was said, you, you shall not kill. But I say to you, if you're so much as angry with your brother, you're in danger of hellfire. If you insult your brother, you're in danger of being called up before God's counsels. He transferred them into absolute principles that no human being can possibly live up to. But in Matthew 5:48, Jesus finished all that teaching by saying, uh, therefore you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And as every Muslim knows, <laughs> I can't do it. It's not possible. Couldn't do it for a day if I tried. As Paul puts it in Romans 7, verse 10, the very commandment which promises life just proves death to me. So Jesus was not really saying to him, you know, just keep one or two more commandments, my, my friend, and you'll be okay. I'll quit you on those five that you quoted and just make the sixth one up and all is well. Not at all. When Muslims say that Jesus just simply was a good prophet and showing other people how to find their way into the kingdom of heaven by doing good works, not at all. I can give you a few texts that you can quote to show just how Jesus made it clear that it was only through his redeeming work that we could be saved. This also, in passing, goes for Muslims who claim, and I've heard it, that Jesus never taught atonement anywhere in the New Testament. I hear these amazing sweeping statements sometimes from Muslims. Jesus never called himself the Son of God. <laughs> well, yeah, never, not never, but at least 40, 50, 60, 100 times. But take these texts, Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 6.51, the bread which I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. John 10.11, same verse I quoted, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And perhaps the best example of all is the Last Supper on the night before Jesus was crucified when he took bread and wine and said, this is my body which is given for you and this is my blood which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26, 26 to 28. Atonement, just like the Trinity and everything else, comes from Jesus himself. He taught it and he fulfilled it when he gave himself up. I'd like to just comment here on an Old Testament pattern that you can use as well with Muslims to show that the atonement didn't come out of the blue, so to speak. It was something that everything that you read about in the Old Testament was working towards. Uh, Abel, when he unlike Cain, offered a sacrifice to God. He took uh, the, the first fatlings of some of his lambs and he slaughtered them and he gave that to God as a sacrificial offering. 
He wasn't offering something that he had done, like Cain, who'd uh, managed to plant trees and produced fruit and came like at a harvest festival and gave some of it to God as a gesture, token of acknowledging him. No, Abel stood back and said to God, only way I can be saved is if you redeem me and I think it'll come at some cost to you. Abraham was the same, called upon to sacrifice his son, supreme test of his love for God because it was a reflection of God's supreme love for us, being willing to his sacrifice his son in good time for us. And that's no coincidence. Jesus said, John 8, 56, your father Abraham saw my day. He saw it and he was glad. And that's exactly what he's referring to. With Moses, the Passover sacrifice, where the lambs had to be slaughtered and their blood put on the top of the lintel and on the side of the doorpost in the very form of a cross, so that the angel of death would pass over the Israelites while bringing down every firstborn son of Egypt. And all the sacrificial offerings that you find throughout the Old Testament that the Jews had to bring, the blood of burnt offerings and sin offerings and of goats and bulls and everything, they were all there to symbolize one supreme offering that was going to come when Jesus came into the world. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice that God has given for the redemption of the world, and there is no other. He entered, Hebrews says, once for all into the holy place, not taking the blood of goats and bulls, but his own blood, thereby securing an eternal redemption. And in Hebrews 9.26, he appeared once for all, the end of the age, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's the core of our gospel that Jesus is the Redeemer, and that without his redemption we cannot be saved. And I hope that some of the examples I've given here will not only help you to counter Muslim objections, but know how to effectively carry this across to Muslims whenever you witness to them.